thank you so much um, for coming to the station. This is WI 88.9 FM. Uh, I'm Malik Aline, your host, and I have a special guest, uh, Ruby Pinto. Ruby, you, uh, what, what percentage of you is artist and what percentage of you is activist? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'd like to say it's even half and half, but I think on any given day, it switches to like 30, 70, either or, depending on what my obligations mm. are. In my private life, I like to do a lot of creative stuff, but I have a lot of like activist obligations. So depending on how full my calendar is, so 70, like the, 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like necessity versus, you know, this is something else that I have to like let sprout and, and be what it is. Right. If I were left to my own devices and the world wasn't burning, I would be there more. <laughs> but, but here we are. So. Right, right. So um, what most recently have you been 70, 30? Activist or art? Like, what's been dominating your life most, most recently? Well, um, so I'm lucky enough to, uh, most of my activism is now funneled through an art collective. So I'm a member of For the People Artist Collective. And um, we are a group. Shout of out for the People Artist Collective. FTP. Yeah, FTP. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're a group of black artists and artists of color who also organize. And we just finished um, our first ever exhibition, and it was a citywide exhibition called Do Not Resist with a question mark. Um, and so we had four different galleries, and the main gallery was at Hairpin in Logan Square, but we also had a Rogers Park gallery, another gallery in Logan uh, Square, and a gallery in Pilsen. And so that was like a month and a half so of our started, exhibition. It started in January, right? Yeah, it and opened. And it just ended? It just, it closed, uh, I think February 10th was the last official day. So it was a month of, mm -hmm. um, you know, the collective coming together to keep it up. And we, you know, we didn't just have galleries and then that was it. We had teach-ins every weekend. We had a live podcast recording. Miriam Kaba came and did a teach-in. Oh, we had sad. tours. So there were five of us on the curation team that kind of like made it all come together. And then the collective and of course the broader community kind of like kept it afloat as the five of us kind of managed programming and, and getting snacks for everybody. So definitely I would say that like while I didn't make much art during that period, mm -hmm. um, it was a very artistic period because I was exposed to a lot of artists and kind of constantly talking and thinking about art influencing activism and art as activism and activism as art. And so again, it's just kind of like inseparable, but right, yeah. Right. It wasn't just an exhibition then. Well, it was an exhibition um, and it was, you know, so the main concept was the last 100 years of police brutality here in Chicago, as well as the resistance to that violence. Um, and also, um, you know, we're, we share the politics of prison and police abolition. And so mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure that there were ways for people to plug into the movement right now. Um, and, and broadly expanding that not only to the CPD and police departments, but also um, the imperious, imperialist nature of the United States military. So we had a teaching on surveillance of Muslim communities. Um, you know, we wanted to talk about deportation and ICE, which is a huge deal currently right now. So we had um, tours for groups that are doing work on that. Um, and and there were, it was more so an opportunity not for people to come together and physically make art, but to talk about the space that creativity opens up within ourselves and our communities to kind of explore ideas that um, if you're working strictly in policy, you might normally not be able to explore. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you work mainly with metals and and glass and, and elements like these. Um, so the, and you're from Pittsburgh, right? Yeah. 
So I was thinking, so the kind of the reputation of Pittsburgh is it's like blue collar, working with the the earth and the things that um, Steel Town, yeah, yeah, yeah Steel Town, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and so, do you do you feel like your upbringing in Pittsburgh um, impacts you know how you choose to express yourself now? Totally, yeah. My personal aesthetic um, and the I, so my main thing that I do publicly is I make jewelry. And it's all made out of scrap copper and other scrap metal. Um, and my personal aesthetic is I just love big, heavy, rusty things. <laughs> um, and I think that comes from kind of coming from a city that was built up during um, the Industrial Revolution. And you saw a lot of heavy use of steel, a lot of um, kind of at this point disintegrating steel mills along the cities. And with that, you see the disintegrating population that was built up by those steel mills, was sustained by them, and then was starved once they kind of fell apart. Um, and you know, my dad's family was coal miners primarily, but everybody in the city um, was impacted by the downfall of the steel industry in some way. Um, and so for me, it's, it's partially a commentary on like the impact that industry has on us as human beings. Um, and for sure, growing up, like I, my dad would always take me to like, I mean, he worked at like an old mental institution and it was like dilapidated by the time I was growing up and he took me to like look at that. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of like aesthetic influences of deteriorating, you know, kind of metal and industry. But also I think that I'm really inspired by um, just the concept of human ingenuity and the way that even though we are, I don't think we're like fully evolved, like we, we clearly don't know how to behave ourselves. Um, it's pretty cool that we've- True. <laughs> we don't know how to act. Right. Um, but it is kind of a, yeah, trash in the studio. <laughs> but it is really fascinating to me that despite all that, we have learned to build plumbing and buildings and the kind of stuff, like the advancements that we have to keep ourselves safe and stay, keep from getting sick. We have like, you know, um, sanitation technology, mm -hmm. all of that is amazing, and also all of it generates an absurd amount of waste. And so the next right. step is to be like, okay, we have this. We don't want to get rid of our advancements, but we have to figure out how to deal with it and like deal with the waste we create. So I'm saying all this waste is around us, this garbage. Like it can be really beautiful, and we can use it to celebrate ourselves and humanity, and also to like decorate ourselves and to also be critical of it. I think it's interesting how so many different. You were saying earlier, Chicago is similar to. Um, to Pittsburgh and a lot of other cities that have had that uh, interaction with industry and how it comes and it brings a you know a boom of prosperity or whatever and everybody's eating and then nobody's thinking about the crash <laughs> and, and the capitalists and so, draw exactly. withdraw as soon as they possibly can exactly right and and that being a byproduct of capitalism like you yeah. you have some some high highs and low lows right um, yeah so the, you were talking about the for the people artist collective. Um, what, so how was that kind of started? When, when did you all first? So two years ago, um, our co-founders, Monica Trinidad and Kyra Lee Connor, came up with the idea um, kind of post We Charge Genocide as that group was kind of coming to a close. Um, a lot of folks kind of realized that um, art was a really, really important resource in the work that we were all doing and that it was always kind of a last minute scramble to get the visuals together for a protest. Um, and so it kind of was partially developed as a rapid response network, saying like a campaign starting, we need banners, we need signs, we need graphics, we need memes, whatever. Um, but also to kind of influence the community here in Chicago and hopefully across the, the world um, to kind of take art more seriously in movement 
um, spaces and to incorporate artistic um, influence from the very beginning so that when a campaign takes off, you already have that um, in the works. Um, and so, for example, with the No Cop Academy campaign that was launched last October, FTP was one of the first groups to sign on, and we were one of the first people to kind of launch the campaign. And since then, art and visuals and creative communication has been really kind of woven into the fabric of the campaign rather than it being like the frosting on the top. Mm. So um, for the past two years, we've been using art both in our interpersonal relationships as well as trying to like, we, we plug into a lot of campaigns and try to think about yeah. that. So talk about like the process, like the experience of um, rapper response from the perspective of, you know, you're saying visual, you know, communication. What is that like, that, that process? You find out, okay, there's, there's about to be an action. Um, who's hitting you up? What are they asking for? And how do y'all execute that? Well, um, previously it was kind of like whoever, like you would be the artist in the, in the org or there would be a few of the artists in the organization and you would get hit with like, okay, we need a banner or we need signs. And you'd, you would either like organize an art party and get folks to come together and kind of like guide the process of making sure the visuals happened. Or what I would end up doing is pulling an all-nighter and being like, I have a bed sheet. I have some old, you know, poster board. I can throw these things together. I have these supplies. Um, and with FTP, we've been able to not only organize bigger art parties so that we come together and like somebody will map out a banner, but then everybody else can paint, fill in the lines. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have been able to kind of collect supplies as we go so that we're not last minute out of our own pockets scrambling to like get a banner. We have like, you know, people donate canvas. Every year we have a fundraiser in Pilsen where people bring art supplies they don't need to us. Um, and we're in the process of getting a space, but right now those are stored in my place on the south side and places in Rogers Park. So when it comes time for a rapid response and we hear that a campaign needs some art and you know we're asked to do that, it's kind of like we can come together with a little bit more time and a little bit more resource in order to get a better product and be less burnt out in the process. How long have you been working with FTP? Two years. So two I was there years. at the very beginning. Yeah. Word up. Um, coming up, I guess, on, it was like two years around Christmas. December is our technical birthday, so. Okay. Yeah. Cool, me too. Yeah. Y'all Sagittarius? I suppose we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Word. So, um, can you think of an action that, you know, at the very beginning that kind of put you all in the direction that you are now? I mean, well, you know how it is building the plane as you fly it and, and organizing <laughs> circles and organizations um, that are committed to, you know, social justice and, um, so can you think of a, you know, one of the early ones and, and what that was like? Sure. So um, definitely feel what you're saying about building the plane. And it's funny, our first year was kind of a blur of like constant work. And the second year, we really took a big step back and we were like, let's work on our internal decision making process. <laughs> so it's been a lot of that, which has been beautiful and also requires creativity. Right, right. But um, one of the earliest campaigns that we really plugged into heavily was the Buy Anita campaign. And that was really near and dear to my heart because when I started organizing about five years ago, she was my very first target. I was working on a campaign to end the use of money bail. And we were like, all right, we can't move Preckwinkle. We can't move the sheriff, Tom Dart. We can't move Tim Evans, the chief judge. We have to go after Anita Alvarez because in this county, the prosecutors set the bail and the judge just goes along with whatever they say. So, yeah. So can you explain <laughs> a little bit more who uh, Anita Alvarez is yeah. for the people? So Anita Alvarez is, uh, she, was, she was the state's attorney for Cook County. And the state's attorney is the person who runs the office of prosecutors. So that means when somebody is arrested by the state, they represent the state and present the charges that that person comes up against. 
So when you are arrested, you go to, um, you know, you have your, your preliminary hearing and um, the state's attorney kind of like sets the terms for what they, they max, they try to max out like what they can get you with, you know, maximum. Um, and under Anita Alvarez, um, <clears throat> she's a politician, right? So she's, she's a lawyer, but really truly she's a politician. So she's thinking about her image and she was like a renowned tough on crime Democrat. Right. And uh, the interesting part about Chicago politics is that there's really no Republican versus Democrat. It's like tough on crime versus reform. So she was always going to be that tough on crime. Specifically in the, the state's attorney office? In general, in I general? think. I mean, you're never going to get a Republican mayor of Chicago. So, you know, when right. you're running against Rom, it's like you're running against the machine versus, like, mm -hmm. how to reform or change the so machine. So the factions within the faction. Right. So, states, so Anita Alvarez was a machine politician, and also she got a lot of support and money from the suburban crowd. And so in order to maintain that, she had to drum up this fear and, like, really feed into this fear of, like, the dangerous poor people in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So she a, was... Right, that classic tactic. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, right. she's, she was marketing herself to the people who had, you know, white flighted out of here. And so she was kind of really always running on um, the concept that, you know, people, you know, the gang members needed to be, quote unquote, really harshly, you know, punished um, and, and just having a totally uh, non-nuanced approach to actually addressing the right, issues. Right. So... Um, you know, whenever I started with organizing, I was with a group, again, that was trying to eliminate the use of money bail. So that means that when you're arrested, um, you go in for your arraignment, and the state's attorney recommends an amount of money that you should have to pay to purchase your freedom. And so whatever that might be, 500 for a minor offense, 10,000, 100,000, whatever the state's attorney decided or the, you know, at the time the prosecutor decided, um, in Cook County, the judge pretty much goes with whatever the state's attorney says. Right. And so we knew that we had to address, if we were going to get to the root of it, we had to address the practice of the state's attorney's office. Um, and, you know, the, the really messed up thing about bail is that if you are brought in on a trespassing charge because you are without a home, you certainly don't have 10% of $5,000 to pay for your freedom. If you're brought in for shoplifting a bar of soap, you certainly don't have $100, 10% of a $1,000 bail to purchase your freedom. However, if you're an affluent person and you're brought in for domestic assault, you can absolutely probably pay the five grand to get out and continue and go back to your life. So what that so looks that, like is... One of the symptoms of criminalization of, of poverty. Exactly. And the main reason why... Cook County Jail is overcrowded as it is right now. Right. Uh, so bail strictly exists to punish you for being poor because it doesn't matter whether you did what you did or not. And I'm not an advocate for punitive measures at all. But when you look at it's just a simple matter of can you purchase your freedom or not. And with that comes, can you maintain your job? Can you maintain contact with your children? Can you keep your housing? If you're in public housing, you can't keep your housing if you're incarcerated. So not only does it punish poor people in the moment, it also spirals into like affecting every other part of their lives. And so that's why we chose it as kind of like one of the main things we could grab onto as far as ending mass incarceration, because it's the beginning of a cycle that eventually puts you into state prison and eventually pushes you into a life of indentured mm -hmm. enslavement, basically, um, that's really difficult to escape, especially if you're poor to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, so with the Bayanita campaign, it was all of that leading up to well before she was up for election. And then also we had the Quan McDonald tape being released and the cover up with Rahm Emanuel for that so tape. Before you get into that, what was the policy that actually was able to be changed as a result of the No Bond campaign? So there are some advancements and it's funny because those actually happened once Alvarez was out. So she was unelected and Kim Fox is in now. And um, a big thing, I think, that a lot of folks who endorsed Kim Fox 
um, they were kind of like endorsing her because they felt that she would be more accessible and we would be able to hold her more accountable to these kind of um, you know, reforms. And Kim Fox is a much better option than Anita Alvarez. Um, she's a black woman. She grew up in Cabrini Green. She experienced homelessness for a while. I actually know her from a little bit of work I did a while ago. Um, but again, like a politician is not going to be the answer. If you have enough power and money to be in that position, you don't have the regular people's interest in mind. Or you can't because you're already bought and sold. Um, so I would say that there was kind of like a huge back and forth between like endorsing Kim Fox versus just unelecting Anita Alvarez. Right, right. and that's yeah. what I, I kind of perceived it as, as more of an anti-campaign. Mm -hmm. Well, so it was kind of the perfect storm with being an anti-Anita Alvarez campaign where there had already been all this build up against her. Um, and then the Laquan McDonald tape came out and um, there were a lot of other circumstances. I mean, she kind of like lost her composure really bad in like she like she like hijacked a press conference and like was speaking about herself in third person. It was really bizarre. Um, she really kind of lost it. So, um, right. So it, she was really kind of an easy target. Yeah. No. The poster campaign. Talk, can you talk about that? Specifically? So we we have an artist in the collective named Sarah G, who's a photographer. And she's gang, the people's gang. camera. She's amazing. She's everywhere. Um, she's, taken, she's done such crucial documentation of the movement in Chicago. Um, and one of the tactics that she uses um, to further the messaging capabilities of a photography is to carry a whiteboard. And she'll do these photo campaigns where she'll have like the message of the campaign and the people can fill in their answer. So for like, um, you know, like why we need to vote Alvarez out and she would like we would do train takeovers and she would be able to like take people's different opinions. Um, so that was part of it. Like the, the phrase was by Anita and we were all able to like take our photos with a whiteboard that said by Anita. So that was one way to show that like there are so many people on this board doing this on this train doing this work, um, you know, that I think in electoral politics, it can kind of feel like, especially again with these machine politics, it's like, oh, there's only these radical activists that are rallying around this cause. It's, they're never going to win. And we were like, we wanted to show how many people and, and the variety of people that were like against Alvarez that made it look like she could lose. Um, we also did 16 banner drops for 16 shots and a cover up. And that was mostly led actually by Asada's daughters. Um, um, it's led by black women, and it's uh, a program to teach young black people, primarily black women, about organizing and activism um, under the, you know, the general guidance of Asada Shakur. Um, and so th they kind of planned these, these across-the-city banner drops um, around train stations and other areas where they would get a lot of um, eyes on them during rush hour. Um, there was actually even a plane that was flown with an anti-Alvarez message <laughs> over Chicago. Um, and then a lot of what FTP did was um, we generated images to be shared online. And we also created a zine, so like a small booklet of um, images drawn by artists that also incorporated statistics. And so we left them all over the place, primarily on trains and other places where they would be picked up. And again, the mess what message was to say, like, this is serious. There are like so many hands on deck trying to get this person out of office. Um, read about why so many people mm -hmm. care about this, you know. And so we were able to kind of, what I love about art is that it's able to engage you um, maybe in a different way than a statistic might um, because it humanizes what's going on. And when you, when you show a picture of Alvarez and then the people that she's locked up who are being you know, impacted by her policies, it's going to draw you in a lot more than like a bland statistic. You know what I mean? So stats what are super important. Get, like, is there like a zine store? A zine store. Or like a, mm -hmm. a zine website shop. Like where, did, where are the zines? Where does zines at? <laughs> That's my question. I want to read. 
I want to be involved and engaged in some zines. Totally. I don't know where to find them. Those, I mean, those zines specifically were like just passed out and distributed. But like you can go to different bookstores, like radical bookstores will have them. There are like zine expos, you know, and zines are like a really amazing thing to think about right now because as the internet kind of gets more like limited as far as what we actually see because of an algorithm or who knows what this repressive regime we're under will start to censor more and more. Zines are something that you can make a lot of really quickly if you have access to a printer um, and pass out like on the cheap and you can write whatever you want and they can be passed around because they're very solid. They're more than a sheet of paper. They're not gonna get like tossed away and wrinkled. Like they will live on, like there's zines from the 70s and 80s floating around still. And it's an art form that was used a lot in like the punk scene too. Um, it's kind of like a very like DIY kind of like way to create art and, and get your message out there. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, there's zines, you know, expos and there's plenty of people that make them and sell them online. Um, they're just a really great accessible way to kind of, you know, it's like a little book and we actually do zine making workshops as FTP too. We'll go into schools or different organizations and teach people how to make their own zines because it's a really accessible way to kind of get your, get your message out. Right. That's where the zines are. For zines. Yeah. So what, I cut you off to make my zine. <laughs> Well, that was mostly it, that we just kind of decided, you know, we're going to plug into this campaign with what we have, which is the ability to generate um, a humanizing image of, like, why people should give a shit. Like, nobody even knows what the state's attorney is, you know, before this, this issue came Unless up. Unless you've been in the system. Right, exactly, right. So um, when I was, you know, started organizing around Anita Alvarez, it was like everybody that was impacted by it, of course, cared right away. But the people that, you know... Are, are not impacted by it and tend to have financial power and privilege. And votes. And vote, right, yeah. And I mean, you know, being incarcerated also impacts your ability to vote. So, um, you know, the folks that like had some power to um, impact her needed to know what was up, you know, and in order to reach people, you have to engage them. And oftentimes that means an emotional level. And so that's why I think art um, can really bring a lot to a campaign. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like, that was a really beautiful campaign that was successful. And again, you know, a lot of folks that I was working with on that end are abolition, prison and police abolitionists, and FTP shares that, that politic. And so, again, we weren't going to endorse Kim Fox as an alternative or a solution because I don't think the state's attorney should exist. That shouldn't be a job, you know? Like, there should not be a jail for her to decide who goes into it, you know? Um, but it was a really important... Um, uh, moment to kind of talk about abolitionist politics within the context of electoral politics and to flex our power and say, we don't need to endorse you to have power over you. We don't need to beg you to save us. We need to just show you that we can vote you out. We can get rid of you whenever we want, you know? So I think it was a really interesting moment um, that brought people who are, were and continue to be more on the electoral tip as well as folks who would never touch an election with a 10-foot pole um, and kind of show that like there are times when you can be allies even if you're normally not really in the same fight, you know, directly side by side, you can come together. Um, and that's what I think is really interesting about like elect election season. Like the, 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 the people who are usually um, in control of us are made vulnerable to us. So it's kind of like an interesting time to kind of flex. That was 20... 16. Right? Yeah, I think. Ooh. Yes. By Anita's. Oh, and then no, they also yeah, yeah, did. Yeah, the I mean, right. And then, there, you know, Asada's daughters also led so many disruptions. All of her fundraising events got shut down because they kept going, taking the stage, interrupting. We went out to some bar in the suburbs and just like 
you know, we had some white folks sneak in and pretend to be supporters, and they disrupted from the outside, from the inside, and we disrupted from the outside. And um, you know, she couldn't go anywhere without having herself look like she couldn't handle an event. You know, so we kind of like smashed her credibility to her base as well, which was interesting. Interesting and, and vital. Like, right. That's probably the only but that way was like a huge tax on the people that were organizing it because it was the same folks leading every action back to back to back. And so you got to think about like the sustainability of that mm. kind of tactic and people why we getting burnt out. People. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So art's another way you can kind of plug in when you're feeling burnt out or not able to make it to the protest or hit the streets, as we say. Um, it's another way to kind of think about people who are differently abled, who maybe aren't able to, you know, or don't want to be out on the streets. The, the first time I saw your jewelry was at one of the uh, black market events mm. um, at Promontory. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you are going to be offering your wares <laughs> <laughs> for purchase anytime soon, and what, uh, if so, where? I actually do the Hyde Park Handmade uh, Bazaar every month, okay. and that's actually this coming Sunday at the Promontory upstairs from noon to four. Um, so that's my main thing. Um, I sometimes I'll vend at other things. A lot of what I do is I donate my jewelry to fundraisers. So go to fundraisers for good okay. causes and you'll be able to win my jewelry <laughs> for Bro. the price of a raffle ticket. So okay. yeah. <laughs> so what, what music have you been listening to lately? Today, um, I was, I really love Milo. Do you know Milo? I've heard of Milo. I don't know Milo. Okay. Yeah. It, like open mic Eagle and bus driver. It's like that kind of crew from oh, California. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, so Milo's most recent album, um, who, who Told You to Think is really great. Um, but I prefer his album, So the Flies Don't Come. And uh, he's, he's really cool. He's like black and Filipino, so his influences are, are pretty interesting. And uh, I mean, he's kind of one of those rappers that ha like flexes his vocabulary, but he makes fun of himself for doing it. So that's, <laughs> that's really what I love. Zen Scientist is a good song. It's him who wrote the Tao of the pessimist as thespians maneuver through the now and its messiness. I've grown weary of their kindnesses, the adult Zen scientist with the inwardly infinite capacity for mindfulness. This is a kite shield to protect you from complacency. I stand adjacent to the vagrancy. No vacancy. Oh, so you want to ask a question? Does your art sort of express things that would be difficult to express in words. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I think art can express things that are difficult and also art can touch spaces and express things that words and especially the English language, which is a capitalist language, could never ever ever express. Like there are so many it's a capitalist language. Like the way that the, the English that we currently speak is one based on like binaries and objects and um, the simplification it's almost like like new speak like in big brother it's like so boiled down like the way mm. that we're taught to use it is like with a, it's like a goal oriented thing you know like the as sentence structure to a communicative like right it's like how do you how do you get to the point of like withdrawing value from our communication are you saying english is the language of capitalism oh one colonist. of them <laughs> the colonist language right <laughs> So um, I think that like, anyway, the point is yes. Um, one of the reasons that as an abolitionist, I am so focused on the use of art is because I think that there are ideas that we need to come into in order to um, reorder our society away from punitive measures that we will not be able to um, even have a concept of if we limit ourselves to the tools that we have right now. 
So like there's all kinds of other expression for ourselves, for our emotions, um, for human interaction that we need to like have a concept of and a more thorough concept of, one that isn't boiled down um, to, to begin to address thoroughly. Like even like, you know, social justice warriors speak like toxic masculinity, like that's a useful term, you know what I mean? And it's overused occasionally, but it's very, very useful. Um, and so I think that art can kind of open those spaces in our minds and in our communities um, that then we will begin to find words for them. But until we have an image or a way to talk about it without the words, we won't even be able to like right. communicate it to each other. Right. So what, what message do you think it sends to take, you know, rusted out pieces of metal and things that you salvage? Um, what does it mean to turn those things into something that you adorn yourself with as opposed to mining precious metals that, you know, kind of completely subverses the idea of, of, you know, what jewelry is and, you know, what's valuable to adorn yourself with. Yeah, well, I think it, it kind of, it's like a non-binary thing. A lot of my personal art that isn't jewelry deals with the intersections of emotions that don't go together. So, like, envy and disgust. Like, you can be envious of somebody and want to be them and also be totally repulsed by them. And, like, that doesn't really make sense because it's not like this is a good person or a bad person. You're supposed to envy or want to be good people. You're supposed to be repulsed by bad people. Like, those things are not separate. So it's the same thing with jewelry where, you know, as people who are like concerned about the environment, we're taught to see waste as like this problem that we need to figure out how to like eliminate. And that's true, but we already have so much waste and we can also learn how to repurpose it and not just for, um, you know, practical purposes, but also to kind of celebrate or just, just to point at the fact that, that human innovation has brought us to this point and, you know, it's gotten out of hand, right. but it doesn't need to be this, like, awful, disgusting, ugly thing. It just is what it is, you right, know? Right, and, like, right, right, we are where we are, and we yeah. need to build things up to deal with it, but we can also pause and just, like, reflect on it. Right. So, yeah, so we're, we're so far, I think that speaks to it, just, like, how far re removed we are to the, um, the processes of consumption and, mm. and waste and what that means. And also, it, it makes me think about, like, just the process of recycling. Um, and how hard it is to wrap my mind around that I'm actually doing something productive when I put this thing in this bin that's right next to the one that say trash, but they telling me this, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so, like you're saying, thinking about repurposing as opposed to that system that's been built. Because it's just another part of the supply chain of what this consumption, you know, waste model that capitalism is. Because capitalism is a culture of waste. Like, mm -hmm. just thinking about buying water bottles and, <laughs> and like that shit don't make no sense like no. you shouldn't be buying a 24 pack of, of water every week like mm -hmm. stop doing that shit if you do public service announcement <laughs> if you if stop you <laughs> out here going to the store and buying big cases pallets of fucking bottled water just like not for events or anything like even that that's not we could we could talk about but <laughs> For yourself, like, please stop doing that. It causes it's way too much waste. You, you don't need to be having a different plastic water bottle every time you want some water. So right. please think about it. And we, don't, we just don't think about how ridiculous that is. It's really absurd. Right. And we just do that shit. And I don't want to go down this path of, like, it's up to the individual to solve these problems. Because, like, truly, our waste, as, like, the three of us here, however many bottles of water we buy for the, the shit that we have to do, whatever we take to the protest, the art show, whatever, does not compare to what corporations dump in every day. And ultimately, 
every single critique I have goes back to capitalism. Like, if we're not gonna hold our corporations accountable, we might as well just kill ourselves because like nothing that we do is gonna have any dent. Oh, you know, right, you know, if we don't get a hang on Amazon like tomorrow, like, you know, we might as well just call it. The dude who run, runs Amazon has like over a hundred billion dollars. He's the most, yeah, and, and they're about what to become that? the first. What is that? Wait, what'd yeah. you say? A hundred one hundred billion dollars, <laughs> and they're they're about to become the first trillion dollar uh, corporation oh ever God. in the history. And like, what does that mean? Like, you ever get an Amazon package and like how big those boxes are, and then they shove a bunch of bubble wrap in there, and it's a box inside a box, and it's usually plastic crap you're ordering anyway. You know what mm. I mean? Like impulse buys. You know? Doesn't Amazon have drones? That deliver they tried and they failed. It's gonna take a minute to get there. Wait, they tried drones? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. drone what? delivery. Yeah. I didn't know about that. Um, but I think also, you know, with, with the plastic, like plastic bottles or something I think about a lot, like plastic bottles are an amazing invention. Like they, they are very useful if they were used appropriately, but they aren't. Um, but we can also like build houses out of them. You can, Wait, you can what would appropriate use of plastic bottles look like for you? I mean, like maybe transporting medicine that really needs to be like contained, like in specific, you know, like uses or like in chemistry to, to you know, transport kind of like things that need to stay and can't be transported, Sealed. right? Exactly. Or I mean, there you know there are probably like, there like plastic is a is a very useful material, but it it's so overused because of the um, people <laughs> that have it and have the um, monopoly of it as a resource know how to make profit off of it. I mean, you bottle a free resource like water and you sell it, and that's more profitable than using it responsibly. So, mm. what do you th can't you think of any plastic bottle uses? I mean. The, the convenience of it is yeah. just so pervasive that yeah. I just w wanted to hear a distillation mm -hmm. of like when it is not superfluous. Mm -hmm. Imagining a world like what does it look like if we only use plastic where plastic is the best option? Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's probably the best option for like certain kinds of technology or storage or medical equipment. You know what I mean? Like I feel like there's certain kinds of things that with the human body you can't use metal or other kind of chemicals, but plastic is useful, like a like a mesh to hold your organs together and that kind of stuff. You know, there's uses for everything, but like we definitely Jesus. are a little Every <laughs> time I get a plastic bag from the store, I mesh. feel so guilty. And then the weird thing about recycling is like the gas that's used to move those things around and if you put a bag in, it clogs up the whole like how do we not have recycling plants that can handle like non-sifted recyclables? Like the limited technology that we have because there's no investment in Recycling technology because it's not profitable. So the more capitalism limits, you know, what is invested in based on what's profitable, the less those useful technologies are going to develop. You know. Do you think um, plastic would be so pervasive in a non-capitalist society? Uh, well, Christiana touched on the the um, convenience factor. Right. So I think plastic is one of those things that's like super all about convenience, like plastic bags, plastic bottles, um, plastic odds and ends around your house. Um, and I think also like, so one person that I come back to all the time, um, there's, there's this BBC documentary called um, Century of the Self. And it's about Edward Bernays, who is Freud's nephew. And he is the person who transitioned us from a needs-based economy to a desires-based economy. So during the Industrial Revolution, production surpassed um, consumption. 
And so, you know, if you look at ads from like the Great Depression and previous, it's all about like how long this refrigerator will last you or how amazing this car is quality wise. And then you see a transition into the PR and advertising industry that um, tells you about how this product is going to make your life better. And so it mm. moves from a needs-based economy to a desires-based economy in order to sell all of this bullshit that was produced by, you know, plastic, I mean, razors, you know, like nobody was shaving their armpits until there was like too many razors and the razor company needed to sell them and they're all of a sudden you're disgusted and you don't shave your armpits, you know? So it's like <laughs> these like, you're not gonna get laid or ever get married or whatever if you don't buy our plastic bullshit. Well, then, then there's a desire for plastic bullshit and then you can keep Right, producing right, right, and profiting right, right. from manufacturing it, desire. That's right. just I don't wild. Want to yeah. Derail this conversation, <laughs> but I just want to say that I stopped shaving my armpits for the first time ever in my life. Yeah. Like two and a half weeks ago. Oh yeah. How's yeah. it going? Uh, my armpit hair is really soft and cute. Um, I, like literally, as soon as I started growing body hair when I was like eight or nine years old, yeah. I immediately started shaving it. I've never actually seen my armpit hair yeah. as an adult woman until now. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if I want to have, like, crazy bushy armpit hair uh -huh. forever. But just, like, the simple, like, fact that I realized, like, shit, I've never, I've never experienced my own <laughs> fucking actual body hair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just decided to not shave, like, a few consecutive days yeah. um, is a totally new, like, experience of my body. So to hear you speak to, like, the way that we have been... Uh, program to do like the fact that as an eight year old I was even aware that like right. I should not have you should alter your body. Hair, you yeah. know you know as you know a, ch a baby child yeah um, to be like no I must be smooth forever right <laughs> um, is crazy so I started growing my armpit hair out like two years ago and this is where I'm at hey. and I love it that's um, a two year yeah it's two, two it doesn't really program. get much longer than this it's just kind of this is where it's at but um <laughs> i love it because that i know what it looks like now and it's very soft and also i'm queer but very femme and so it helps other queer people to be like you're probably not totally straight like, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that helps um but i still shave my legs like like this programming i have tried to not shave my legs and i want my legs to be shaved and i like love my hairy armpits it makes no sense it's just like this weird warped like sexy because my armpit hair is long and my leg hair is gone. Like, I don't know like, why that makes sense to my brain, but here we are. Dissonance. Mm. Yeah, it's bizarre. But, I mean, I think the dissonance itself is, like, queer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And part of it is, like, you know, part of my femme presentation is, like, I shave my legs, but then also part of my queer presentation is that I don't shave my armpits. Like, all mm. this weird sexuality stuff around it, too. And I find that, like, People in general like find you know don't don't want to admit that they find body hair sexual and attractive, but then like once you're in bed and like pheromones are around, everybody's like, oh, they want to nuzzle your armpits. Like it's really weird. <laughs> okay, so since we're talking about it, so <laughs> I, also, I know, but I think it's so important. Also, yes, um, and a part of like the larger arts activism conversation, right? Because our bodies are like a curated part of ourselves. Yeah. Um, and also like the intersection of all the things that we're fighting for broadly. Right. Um, but I also like have been trying to decolonize my hygiene mm -hmm. and that is what the trajectory that led me to stop. What does that mean, decolonizing your hygiene? Um, so it started with me really questioning deodorant. Um, I mean, in general, just like questioning the chemicals that I put on my body, right? So. It, before it, it was deodorant, it's like, why would I buy lotion <laughs> when like shea butter, coconut oil, 
olive oil, all of the things that you know, I would get some feel vegetable oil in, in the kitchen. You I mean, just frying vegetable some, oil. Like, frying some chicken no, with, you I, know. Don't discount the vegetable <laughs> oil either. Because um, canola oil is like great in your hair, all kinds of stuff, right? So, so that's the beginning of it. It's like, oh, I'm gonna use shea butter uh-huh. instead of Jergens, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, the coconut oil in, instead of Nivea. Um, but then, like, really questioning what does it mean to like uh, the aluminum that is in deodorant, that is the active ingredient in deodorant, like creates all these gland disruptions mm-hmm. in our body. Uh, and what does it mean that like we are so uncomfortable with human smells and with our sweat production mm-hmm. that we would like poison ourselves, literally poison ourselves, uh, create this gland disruption that like throws off all kinds of systems in yourself. Um, and so, you know, I started experimenting with like different pastes and natural things Um and I, I just find, like, natural body smell so fucking sexy mm-hmm. now. Yep. Like, the further <laughs> away that I have gotten from, like, the idea that fake chemical fragrance smell equals clean, mm-hmm. um, the more I have just enjoyed the, the, like, gritty sensuality of, like, bodies and, yeah. and my own smell, like, does, you know... I'd be turning myself on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Catch up with my be like, ooh. No, I'm literally like um, my husband. I'm like, hey, can you smell my armpits? It's like, it's like, it's know? like a thing now, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little bit curious about this notion of decolonization, just because I guess I've talked about it previously, but it seems as if. Hold on, you gotta have a mic. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It seems as if when you uh, talk about decolonization, you want to get closer. Reinforce that method as well at times, hmm. because it's decolonization is more of a, a sort of a power tactic in a sense. But um, when you try to like I guess separate yourself from decolonization, you sort of become re almost reintroduced to it. And I think that can you, can, what do you mean by that? So. Uh, for example, this is um, Martinique philosopher called Gillesant, who talks about decolonization, and he, the way he sort of seems to describe it, is that once you sort of try to separate yourself and create this distance from what is, he uses for example, uh, uppercase history versus a lowercase history. Mm. So from history as this one big history that's very hierarchical. But once you try to say that, oh, we've now created our own history or our own this or our own that, you've now tried to separate yourself. But what history with a capital H tends to do is reintegrate what you've chosen to sort of, or what you've attempted to separate yourself from back into it. So you're always in this sense of like trying to separate yourself, but become Reassimilated, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Can I answer? Yeah, go ahead. I, I don't know. I think I get the gist of what you're saying. And like anything that we do currently is going to be within the context of where we're at right now. Like we can't turn back time. And I don't look at decolonization as like trying to turn back time or separate myself from like the context. What I do look at it as is kind of like exploring the idea of like 
What part am I missing of myself that was taken away from me? Mm. And can I reclaim that and continue to exist and like bring that back to myself and other people? Um, like it was taken away from me because it was powerful, most likely, because the colonizers want to disempower you. So, you know, how can I reincorporate that back into my life in a way that brings power to me? Um, while also acknowledging that like, I'm not gonna just go off the grid. You know, like, that's not what it means, you know what I mean? Or, or and, and I'm not gonna base my whole life around like being in opposition to my colonized life because that's what it is and like I have to continue to exist. But it's more for me about like, and it's really difficult for me because I'm mixed and I have like a lack of connection to like my, a lot of my history for a lot of reasons. Um, but I look at it as more of like a spiritual practice than a practical one sometimes. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's important that we acknowledge the way that uh, the social buzz of decolonize can reify colonization and colonizing practices in a lot of ways um, when it is about opposition. Uh, but yeah, I would just echo everything Ruby said about the reclamation part of that um, and the the finding the power, right? Like that, I never questioned why I shaved my armpits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, literally, I was eight years old. I started shaving my armpits. I never was like, why do I do this? Mm -hmm. Why do I think this is necessary? Mm -hmm. Why is this automatic for me when I get in the shower? It's a part of my hygiene routine. Mm -hmm. You know, not because my mother taught me either, right? Like, my mother was never like, oh, you know, you brush your teeth, you wash your face, and you shave your armpits, right? It was something that, like, was commercials, I just, I just absorbed as, like, I am growing hair. I am supposed to be smooth and hairless mm -hmm. to be feminine. Mm -hmm. right. And I am a feminine so. girl, and I'm going to be smooth and hairless. And as an eight-year-old, I had that consciousness. Mm -hmm. And never from eight to 31 did I, like, stop to question it until, like, three weeks ago. <laughs> And so, I was like, why? Okay, my, I just, I let my, like, I probably, like, skipped an extra day, and I saw, like, the little curve of my armpit Aww. hair, and I was like, huh, <laughs> look at my little curvy armpit stubble. I wonder what it would do if I went three more days, and I, like, rubbed it, and I was like, it was oh, it's so soft, it's cute. It was an experimental. Hair, right, it was a sensual experience that, like, and so I think it, it is as much about the, the physical sensual um, of me experiencing my body that is mine uh, for the first time. Um, but it is also like that intellectual work of questioning why uh, it was an assumption mm -hmm. from the beginning. Some, you know, why was it that like I'm gonna consume this product to alter myself in this way for years and years and years and years and years, you know? And had I never had the questioning thought, I would just be consuming Gillette, or probably the Walgreens brand, because what's in my budget, you know, and all the plastic waste that comes along with that. Um, but I would just do that. I would just buy the razors and do that, and and never stop to be like, why? What taught me that I needed to do that? Um, so so yes, I do think that we need to constantly investigate how our resistance or how our opposition or how our like staging conflict reifies the power that we are 
in opposition to and, and striving to dismantle. Um, but well, I think what, what more is, important than that is like the reclamation of our humanity, the reclamation of our power in ourselves. Uh, and I think I really fuck with what Ruby said about like it was taken from me probably because it was powerful. Like, what does it mean for me to be a woman completely in comfort of my natural body? It means so much less money for <laughs> for what? goddamn <laughs> companies. Like, it's imagine like this this phrase like imagine if if women love themselves what a hit the economy would be like if we stopped consuming everything we consume to change who we are when we wake up in the morning so much money would be lost Sorry. you know what were you gonna yeah. say <laughs> no so i guess your original question or your your original statement kind of laying out the fact that when you offer resistance to a set of ideas that has been imposed upon you you are Im implicitly or, or explicitly um, assigning value or at least some kind of power to whatever you know that set of ideas was right is that is that the, the point you're making and right so so yes I think that's a a valid like observation objective you know objectively yes but what I guess in the context of you know, being able to take care of your body and maintain your hygiene without, you know, subscribing to the capitalist ideas and, and, and products and all of the shit that, you know, is being pushed upon you in practice. What, what is the, I guess, what, where's the lack of value in, in doing that in this context? You know what I mean? Is that a clear question? Sort of. Um, let me see. Are you saying sort of the, the, so yes, maybe we are, like you said, reifying these things that we're working against, but we're also opposing them actively, right? And building other structures or you know ways of being. Like I have made my own toothpaste. Exactly, right. You're pushing back against that. So yes, that is true, a true objective realization, but does that impact the fact that we should probably still try to decolonize ourselves? That's interesting. I think one of the questions that I would have then is so where your motives actually lie then? Do you, are you doing this for more so? When you're, decolon when you're decolonizing something about yourself, quote right. unquote, is, is it because just because this is some colonizer shit and I want to get rid of it or because I see utility in moving differently? Is that what you're asking? Right, and more so where does that difference or distinction come from actually mm -hmm. yeah. for me anytime thing? I've been able to decolonize a part you know a part of my life or experience um, it's just been out of living in a colonized way um, and then in a decolonized way and seeing this shit kind of feel a little better I think I think the most the most obvious example is uh, food like nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, it's so much like easily accessible bullshit food that you can buy and that a lot of people do buy and that I was buying. And then it's like, why are we eating? How are we sustaining ourselves? You know, what decisions are we making about what we put into our bodies? Because a lot of the shit that we call, you know, nutrition is detrimental. It's killing you, like actively killing you. So I think there's real utility in decolonizing your nutrition. I see that. 
And I guess sort of I'm always thinking about things from a sort of philosophical perspective. But one of the things um, Marx sort of says about capitalism is this notion that it's always like exploiting old markets or reinventing itself. So in a sense, one could say that this new idea of like eating healthy is sort of mm. a re-exploitation of capitalism in a sense. Yeah, depending on how it's how you know how it's executed, it's a bunch of yeah. It's 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 a fucking right. So if home. you're not actually growing your food, you know, right? Are are you actually decolonizing, <laughs> or are you just capitalizing in a different way? Uh, um, but I do think you know even even still, right? Like even still, um, even if you are supporting like a different tributary of capitalism. Uh, by like trying to eat healthier, uh, if you are healing your body and strengthening yourself and sharpening your mind, um, then I think that that is you know a valuable step. Like even when I say like, oh, I uh, you know have stopped buying deodorant and now I use what some other thing Baking that I buy, soda. you know what some other thing that I buy, yeah. you know, and soda. even if I'm like mixing things. <laughs> You know, mixing so natural things to make another thing. Like I'm buying all those things, mm -hmm. and mostly I buy my lavender oil from Walgreens. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. um, I am not harvesting lavender myself and extracting the oil. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think do think that like thing, there is though. a larger philosophical question about like even as we sort of divest from certain colonial practices and, and culturally colonial impositions. Um, on our daily like functions, uh, how even that effort can still be supporting capitalism, and how living in this world, like how do we practically divest uh, from colonial capitalist imperial systems altogether right. um, without just like blowing the whole shit up? Like right, right, you know, right. I don't know. I think that's a beautiful struggle. I, though. I think I think that's. <laughs> I said I bet Ruby knows the answer. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say the same thing where it's like if you if you look at it again like I said earlier, if you look at it as something you're going to personally do, good luck because it doesn't matter what you personally do, the deodorant company is still going to exist because like unless you organize a mass movement against deodorant, you know, and and everything that comes with it, the plastic containers, all the chemicals that go into it and and you bet there's not a deodorant company. It's Johnson and Johnson, one of right, six right, monopolies. Right. So like your your lack of consuming a deodorant, you know, you personally it's an act of power, but like at a grand scale, it's it's nothing unless we organize to end capitalism. Right. And but I, but I just to interject, I think though personally it's a it's a very like emotionally and spiritually empowering thing to be able to walk in your own you know what I mean? Like totally. I, I live the way that you believe. You sh you know you know what I mean to di divest from these things and not mm -hmm. allow your lifestyle to be guided by you know things that you don't believe in. I think totally. that's that's a there's a whole lot of value in that as well. Right, and I think the tricky thing, and this is what I wanted to get at, and again it goes back to this Edward Bernays dude, but um, the issue there is that, like you said, capitalism is always reinventing itself. And so you will see, like, with the healthy food movement, well, then Whole Foods comes in, and that's owned by a, a libertarian. And you can be taught as a consumer to um, believe that the product is, in fact, your personal desire. So, again, it's, it's influencing you to consume in a way that's convenient to capitalism 
through your concept of resistance to the colonizer or whatever, and yet you're still playing into the same thing. Right. So it's in, especially insidious when you get into like the concept of, you know, so, so we know that white supremacy and capitalism go hand in hand currently, and that they build each other up. Um, but you can even take like, you know, the, the natural hair movement, which is supposed to, at its core, ideally be anti-white supremacy, and yet there's all kinds of like marketing campaigns for natural curly girls, you know what I mean? And so talking about like, yes, it's, it's amazing and, and really crucial um, for our survival and our spiritual well-being to know ourselves and to love ourselves, but capitalism is tricky enough to make us believe that we're really fighting against something when we're playing right back into it. I.e. Black Panther. Exactly, right. And it's like, you know, who made money from that? And like the, you know, if you look at, I mean, Beyonce, which I, I know it's slander to speak against Beyonce, but like. As it is Black Panther. Exactly. Let's talk about them both. But like, who the fuck, you know, is making a bunch of money from Beyonce's Black Panther performance at the Super Bowl? Not black organizations, nah. you know? So it's like, you know, it's, it's just kind of, you can, you can feel really good about a decision you make as a consumer. And if capitalism is smart enough, it will make you feel like that's an empowering move for you and your community. Um, but we have to be one step ahead of it. And Edward Bernays used his uncle um, Freud, um, his, his concepts of like human desire, the subconscious, to in, and applied it at a mass level to create this sense of um, the consumer having power over themselves as the individual through the products they consume. So you can talk about like, um, you know, individually, I feel better when I eat organically and I use um, a, an organic deodorant. And if you're going and you're purchasing those parts of your identity from a capitalist institution, you're just getting played again and again. And so it's like kind of this daunting task of like, not only do we have to individually decolonize ourselves, we also have to like, address this entire system that depends on us being tricked into thinking we're decolonizing ourselves. Right. You know? What if I buy my crystal deodorant from a black business? Mm, do you That's think, what I'm saying. That's what I think the, the, the beautiful struggle small is, entrepreneur. is understanding that we, we are in a, you know, a, a, a levels upon levels of fuckery that, we, we have, that we're trying <laughs> exactly. to shed. We're trying to shed it. But right. understanding that and realizing that each step that we do make you know, on the road to decolonization, yeah. uh, whether we get there, quote unquote, or not, mm-hmm. uh, it is valuable. And in, in that, um, just because you know, at each point, you know, stage along the way, you know, that we may be still in, investing in these systems, and 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 um, it, it's still it's still valuable to understand, you know, that it's a struggle and it's a, a constant process that. Yeah. It's not linear. Like you can make right, eight right, steps right. forward in exactly. one direction, and in order right, to sustain right. yourself. Like for me, whenever we were doing the um, and then um, Popeyes for a week straight. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> whenever we were doing the art exhibit, and I was like, I have to be at this gallery every day. You bet I was taking Ubers every day yep. because I couldn't. I didn't have the time. So like, I was relying on a, a terrible, you know, um, a gig economy, super exploitative um, company that I know is basically like the scab of the cab unions, you know what I mean? And like, I work for a labor union, so I understand all that. We have a huge cab, you know, union within our, within our network. And yet for me to be able to go and do my one revolutionary task, I need to rely on all this other shitty stuff. And it's like, I'm not gonna like burn myself out to the point where I'm so exhausted because I wanna make sure that I'm eating all organic kale that I harvested and and put away. Like I don't have the time (laughs) to do that. I live in the middle of Chicago. And if I were gonna live a different life, and go off the grid, but that's another thing. Like, if you go off the grid, what are you doing for your people then, you know? So it's like, if you want to do that, go ahead. But 
um, I can't realistically live the life and have the impact I want to have without automatically falling back on all these other oppressive things. And there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, which is why we have to end capitalism so that we can begin to ethically consume. <laughs> but we can't do that if, you know, and, and yeah, and it, it's not linear and it's not all or nothing and it's not binary. So, and there's no, no again, the individual is not to blame. It's, it's Amazon or, or Johnson and Johnson that's to blame. So, and I, and, and, and let Sorry. me just fucking add to for all you, uh, you people who, who like to talk <laughs> shit you about... people. No, I just need a rant about, the, like, people who, who talk shit about, like, social justice warriors and, like, you know, y'all idealists, oh, idealistic yeah, and all no, of this shit. Dreamers. Like, come, come, have, come sit down and talk with Ruby Pinto and, and Christiana <laughs> Cologne and Malik fucking Aileen, right. and we'll talk about, you know alternatives to this shit like abolition isn't just about get rid of it's about building the the type of world and, and the things that we want to you and know that to, is to interact hiring with. yo it's so hard. It's, it actually it consumes your whole being it yep. is but but don't act like that shit is not being thought about and is not being actively produced mm-hmm. in in these networks of people like you if you you if you have ideas about you know a better world that you would like to live in and you want to create that then you can do that shit and so stop acting like niggas is just shooting the shit. Like mm-hmm. I wish, yeah. There's no capitalism, nah, nigga. We don't <laughs> need it. We don't need it. Yeah. No, that's grant, something grant I, I often get into it with with older folks who were like really set in their ways. Where you know, like somebody will be like, "Well, a lot of police officers have families," <laughs> and like I'm like, "Okay, well." <laughs> A lot of their victims also have families. Like, why is it that, like, the police officer's family's comfort comes above and beyond the fucking massive centuries-old destruction that that institution has done to literally right. everybody? Some shit they signed up for. Right. And, it's, yeah, it's a choice. And it's like, you know, no, I don't want this cop's kid to starve to death, but I also would, like, I don't want any more children to die at the hands of the state. So, like, stop acting like your hands are tied, you know? Like, I, my generation, I think we're the last ones who can even like fathom living in the world as it is currently. We see the abyss, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, read, I'm reading Parable of the Sour right now by Octavia Butler and it's hey. set in 2024 and the adults are like, we've been looking at the abyss and she comes online at 15 and it's like, holy shit, we have to do something. And I feel like our generation is like coming into age where we're like, it's going to end. Like if we don't get our shit together, you know? Everything will burn. <laughs> and maybe it will. And that's, I'm also kind of, you know, I teeter on the nihilist tip, but you don't get anything done if you don't believe in anything, I guess. Shit. <laughs> and I, yeah, and, and low key, every, there's room for all kinds of people too. The motherfuckers who don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. I envy you. <laughs> um, and you're, must be nice. Not really, though. <laughs> you know, to, to an extent, right. Because I could make a decision to not give a shit, but I would not be happy then. So, so you know, it's just perspective. My you would just the be people medicating. Who go off the, yeah. the grid, the people who go off the grid, I'm like, look, I'm finna have my shit, mm-hmm. raise my, my cattle. <laughs> now, those are the ones I actually envy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. That's what, but like you said, if I go off the grid, how am I helping my people? Mm-hmm. And I don't fault, you know, the people who make that decision say, you know what, it, it's more important to me that I live this way while I'm here mm-hmm. than it is to help the rest of the I world. think, you <laughs> know, <laughs> for, for, for you some know? of us and maybe for all of us, the most uh, important thing we can do for our people is heal ourselves. Mm. Um, you know, because any any work that we are approaching from our 
wounded selves we make in the image of our wounds. It's true. Um, so, you know, if for some of us that means complete removal <laughs> from society, like I'm just going to go work on me for the rest of this lifetime, um, you know, yeah, I think that's valuable too. If you, if you foresee doing more harm than good, yeah, or just in general. Or just in general, yeah. you know. What if the wounds are sort of just a part of the self? Because I feel like, in a sense, trying to make yourself whole or try to heal the wounds sort of does a violence to the wounds themselves. Because I think the wounds are have essentially become part of the individual. So instead of trying to, I guess, heal them, why not, why not try to just reconcile that and realize that, yeah, the wounds are yourself or part of the self? I, I think a big part of healing is um, acknowledgement, right? It's not really uh, that I'm going to erase a scar or, or something like that, but um, when you you have a situation that happens to you where you feel like you need to heal from it. Um, I think there's ways to deal with something that um, are constructive and there's ways to deal with things that are destructive. And I think dealing with something that you feel is detrimental to yourself in a constructive way, um, whether it gets rid of a scar or, you know, whatever, I think that is a, an act of healing. Um, you know, the the process of figuring out, you know, if I encounter a situation like this again, even if it goes the same way, right, is it going to affect me the same way, right? How am I, how am I processing, how does it impact me in a way that I can use it in a productive way as opposed to let it, you know, push me back. So I think that's, that's really what healing is and that's making, you know, making you a better person, right? Like really actively and intentionally you know, dealing with the lessons that you learn and implementing them, you know, in the, mo the most useful way. Um, that's what, how I see healing. Um, but it's not, yeah, healing is some hard shit. Yeah, and it's, it's not like, a, again, it's not like binary or like, I'm healed now. Right, 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 right. It's more about like, why, why, why am I hurt to begin with? Do I even see it as, as hurt? I think a lot of like our... Our wounds become evident only when we hurt somebody else because of them. You can live a long life surrounded by, you know, people who will brush over your wounds or who just don't, you know, aren't impacted by them. And then you might encounter somebody that you really, really care about. And part of your behavior that comes from you being hurt in the past really hurts them. And then you wake up and you think, I can't keep behaving this way or this person isn't going to be in my life or I can't be part of this community anymore. And I see a lot of that happening with, um, with men dealing with toxic masculinity and specifically with the Me Too movement where men are realizing like even if I haven't assaulted somebody, I am still uplifting this violent culture. And that's not something that, that you can just be like, well, that's just what it is. Like, yeah, we live under patriarchy. We need to fucking quit living under patriarchy because it's hurting all of us. It's hurting men too. It's hurting young boys. It's the inability to um, articulate your frustration and your pain in any way other than hurting somebody else is, is, is leading to a terribly violent world. And so... Um, a lot of that requires withdrawing and, and dealing with um, a really painful transformation. A friend of mine described it as, you know, he was looking at his toxic masculinity behaviors towards his partner, um, a, possessive, a possessive emotion he had towards her, 
and she called him on it, and he said it felt like removing a tumor, like pulling a tumor out of himself. It wasn't pleasant, he felt sick, it hurt a lot, but when it was over, he could feel that where that tumor had been, there was a space for something better. And so that's kind of how I look at healing, is like, you got all this shit inside of you, and if you don't address it, it's gonna take up space for something that right. could be so much more beautiful. Mm-hmm. Or sustaining. Right, yeah. I can think of a few like old behaviors and emotions that I, you know, would let run rampant <laughs> and then not even understand or realize how damaging or how I would need to heal from, you know. Those I mean, even the concept the of romantic love is possession. It's all we have. You know, like monogamy culture tells us, like if you love somebody, they're your possession, and it's right. romantic to go crazy with jealousy when they interact in some way with anybody else. It's like, how many domestic murders has that led to? That's not what love is. It's just what we're sold and taught is love. And if we don't do some serious work to address that, we're going to keep getting killed by our intimate partners. You know, it's not just a matter of like, oh, that's unpleasant. It's like, it's literally femicide. You know, this came I mean? up in my, uh, my playwriting workshop with my Kenwood students today. There were several, from, in response to the writing prompt, there were several uh, young people who wrote these like, 30 second dramas about a partner murdering someone mm. over jealousy mm. so like, it's prevalent randomly you know yeah. like it was like who wants to share who wants to share and we heard two of those back to back wow and we had this exact conversation yeah um about you know because there's also like this hyper vigilance now um after the the parkland shooting around gun violence in the schools um, and, and just in this moment in class today had to grapple with like, yeah, well, but most gun violence is actually not like rampages, mm-hmm. right? It's actually women being killed by their intimate partners. I don't know, I just, I left and I came back and y'all were in the middle of that. Well, we were talking about healing like, and that's, that's toxic masculinity, which, yeah. is, which is like propped up as this beautiful thing. You're a provider, you're a strong, you know, you love your, your partner so much that you just can't imagine, you know, it drives you crazy to imagine her um, being intimate with somebody else. And that's propped up as good, as, as like a beautiful romantic feeling. And it's so fucking violent, you know? So it's- And capitalism also. <laughs> right? yeah. And also like, <laughs> let's make women commodities. Property. And that like possession of them mm-hmm. is the ideal. And that there is this scarcity model mm-hmm. that like the fewer people she has interacted with, the higher her value mm-hmm. is. Right. Um, and then, like, and then tie it to some, some religious, you mm-hmm. know, get, add that to it. Just put the <laughs> the fucking icing on the cake, and then, it's, yeah, like you're saying, it, it, it's actively detrimental to everyone in living under, you know, patriarchal and, we can trace, and, oh, and yeah, patriarchal and, and no, and decolonize your pleasure is one of the Black Sex Matters slogans. Yeah. So as we're talking about decolonizing, like that also being an area that like intimacy. Uh, is another area where we have ingested all of these um, assumptions about how the world should be organized and just been like, okay, I'm just on this path. <laughs> all right, this is just how it is. Yeah. Um, and that part of like reclaiming our uh, sovereignty is also reclaiming our intimate sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a book called Sex at Dawn that I reference constantly about the evolution of human sexuality and um, the impact that the development of agriculture had on human sexuality, where 
Ooh, it's rough. It's basically patriarchy is a result of agriculture. So thanks, corn. Damn. <sighs> but um, previous, you know, when, as we were evolving, and if you look to the bonobo uh, monkeys, which are our closest primate relative, they live in a matriarchal society. It's assumed, or, you know, yeah, the research. Yeah, bonobos be fucking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, like literally, there are all kinds of queer relationships. There is no concept of paternity. There's no concept of monogamy. And whenever a fight breaks out, all the females are like, no, 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 no. Let's rub each other. Let's have some sex. Like, it's fine. Like, you do not need to go to war right now. Like, chill the fuck out. Like, it's, it's cool. Here's an orgasm, you know. Um, but, but that's how humans, um, it seems like that's how humans primarily evolved, where, you know, it was matriarchal societies, tribes of no more than 150 people, which there's a name for that number, but that's the number of people you can actually love and care about in an intimate way is, like, about 150. That's what your brain can handle, like, loving, like, a family member. Um, Mm. Tribes about that size or, or 150. less. 150. 150. There's a public, number that's Another called. public service announcement. <laughs> if you're trying to love more than 150 people, maybe, you know, take a step back. <laughs> Spread yourself a little thin. Yeah. But the kind of thing where, like, you would die for that person or you would, you would sacrifice for that person. You would raise that, that person's child, which is exactly how it happens. So there would be matriarchal societies. Um, you know, the concept of monogamy or patriarchy, um, you know, wasn't really a thing because sex was not based on who the father was. It was like, we need a bunch of people because it's safety in numbers. Um, you know, when a human is born, we want to all love and nurture that human. And that includes strong emotional bonds because that's what's going to keep us going in tough times is our love for each other. Like, that was just how we developed. Um, and and there are all kinds of theories around, like, sexuality there. But then whenever... Um, agriculture developed, all of a sudden it was men who were working in the land and men who were staking out territory. And so they didn't want to feed children that weren't their own because all that work was going in to, to you know, developing the crops and, and having the, the livestock, et cetera. And so women became property because the concept of paternal lineage developed where it was like, I'm gonna pass my farm down to my son um, and he better not be the neighbor's son because that would be a waste <laughs> of my time, you know? Yeah. So then all of a sudden it's beneficial to have multiple wives, keep them pregnant at all times. So, but wait, <laughs> but, but why didn't agriculture always develop collectively then? Like, how, how do we get to this, like, nuclear family unit from agriculture, agriculture of, like, my farm? Like, if there's 150 of us mm -hmm. and we're all fucking and it's great, mm -hmm. um, you know, why don't we have farms or the farm and this is our farm it was just the concept of personal property it's literally like the root of capitalism like ownership like there was no concept of like this is mine and this is yours but that sounds like some white shit like we <laughs> didn't do that no no we? and i think i mean i don't i think agriculture developed in um basically like the middle east um i don't mesopotamia. know mesopotamia yeah <laughs> the fertile crescent between the tigris and the euphrates <laughs> Thank you, fifth grade social studies. No problem. Recalling that. I don't know about like some white shit, but it's definitely some colonizer shit because at that point, the biggest sociopath wins. The person who's willing to murder a child who is not their child mm. wins. Like infanticide was not a thing. People didn't murder babies that weren't theirs until agriculture developed and until paternity, like patriarchy happened. Sex at dawn will blow your mind. It'll change your opinion about everything. Hey. What's it by? It's by two researchers. I don't know the names. Sex at dawn. It's yeah, a really great no, book. We'll look it up. It's, it's amazing. And this. I haven't even read the whole thing and I'm always referencing it. Like I feel like a poser because I'm like, read this book. And I've only read like 
the, the juiciest parts, but it's I've but only like, read eighty percent of like the ethical slut. Okay, <laughs> it's like referencing I keep a journal the first or article in a chapters. journal. Yeah. It's like say? referencing an article in a journal. Let's, yeah, mm-hmm. I yeah. read this article in a journal. I get the gist of it. Right. Yeah, but it's. Definitely. I mean, that's something. Again, it's all inseparable. Like white supremacy imperialism, monogamy, you know, all leads to capitalism, all leads to the individual um, being separated from their community and being marketed to. And then, you know, individualism leading to like extreme violence and sociopathic behavior um, that allows us to like not get our shit together as a a human race. So so if you uh, have the autonomy to decide if you want to live in a collectivist or an individualist society, um, probably... Probably go collectivist. It's difficult. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's not easy. Again, with the yeah optimism, well, plastic is convenient, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I want to go home to my apartment that I share with only my husband, and you know, have my food there because that's what I can deal with right now. But yeah. Uh, yeah, ideally, I mean, it wouldn't yeah. be that separate. I mean, but you can still have your, you know, some something. Right. <laughs> you have some something. Sure, and still yeah. Be, still be collectivist. Yeah. It's just at the point where it hurts somebody else that we have to work on. Definitely. At the point where individuality hurts, hurts, or individual living, you know what I mean? Your actions as an individual or your consumption as an individual begins to harm somebody. Right. Whether that's a partner being consumed by you and limited by you or the way that your physical consumption habits impact impact the rest of the world. Wow, well... We veered um, all over the place. <laughs> I have I've had some uh, epiphanies and realizations and enlightenments, uh, particularly about zines. <laughs> but a lot of Let's make a zine next time. Can we make air. a zine? Mm-hmm. We'll make a zine about your radio show. You could tell the story, like, one page per episode. Each, revel- each episode that left you with a revelation, like, each page. Could this episode has left me with a revelation about how I'm going to conduct my podcast moving forward. Yeah? So that's pretty... Uh, Do you want to share it? Absolutely. I think, um, I think I have mainly tried to guide and shape my interviews around uh, kind of tangible, concrete products that my guests have you know, offered the world. And I think um, kind of letting the, the conversation unfurl uh, and touch on the things that I know I care about and the guests that I'm talking to care about that may be outside of um, the art that they produce uh, is interesting and important for me to let that kind of blossom. So I'm going to And inherently open up. anti-capitalist, because focusing on production or product uh, is right, right, right. But, but, but also focusing on the process of what that means, though, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, sure. how does industry impact your ability to create? Being, you know, the you know the perspective that I was approaching that at, as but opposed still go to go get Ruby stuff at Sanatorium <laughs> sure Monday. Right, Monday. Right, right. <laughs> you can yeah, find absolutely. me yeah. even though I have critiques of Promontory. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's the thing. Yeah, but, I, I uh, or Ruby yeah, though. It's, rough. Yeah, it's it's hard. That's why I advocate for just hoping that you run into it at a fundraiser. You should definitely be giving right. your money to organizations and not bougie brunch places. <laughs> yeah, for real. So um, on that note, could you 
give your plugs, your social media, how we can, your Etsy shop. I was on your Etsy shop today. It's one item. It's one item. I'm really bad at Etsy. I'm not a good capitalist. I'm bad at it. <laughs> I'm so like, you, yeah. Do you work better with like commissions? Does people hit you up like, yo, I'm trying to have. Yeah, like follow me on Facebook and Instagram. So my business name is a made up name. It's Adornamorphosis. Ooh, adornment metamorphosis. Like it's a changing adornment. So um, Adornamorphosis by Ruby Pinto. Um, or if you just look up Ruby Pinto, it'll pop up. Um, and yeah, I have an Instagram and a Facebook and most of my stuff is either sold in person or like somebody will send me a message and through that, like I need to get my Etsy together, but it's just not on the top of my list. Um, and then a lot of my stuff is sold in person. And also please follow For the People Artist Collective, FTP. We're on Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram. Huh? <laughs> I'm just. What's well, funny, we were in a, we were in a. Affirmative <laughs> yeah. hype man noises. Yes. So. Get, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 FTP. <laughs> uh, yeah, For the People Artist Collective. Um, and No Cop Academy, hashtag No Cop Academy. That's the next campaign we're gonna be, I mean, it's currently ongoing. And in conjunction with like the amazing um, protests led by young people who are having their high schools shut down, um, you know, dealing with the very clear prioritization of our incarceration over our education in the city. Um, mm -hmm. So No Cop Academy is going to be Pause, really though. big. Pause, Listen, to all you, <laughs> all you, you people, hey. motherfuckers who think we need, uh, what is it, $95 million? $95 million. million goddamn Those people don't Academy. listen to your show, Malik. I don't care. I want <laughs> Shit, they need to. We need investment in education, not fucking policing. That's right. It's very simple. So simple. It's Tell, so your simple. Tell your aldermen. Tell your aldermen. My God. Tell your mother. Tell your brother. Tell your uncle. Tell your racist uncle. Tell your racist uncle. Yeah. Cool. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish That's it. it. Follow No Cop Academy, follow um, For the People Artist Collective, and if you want to hit me up, Adornamorphosis Jewelry by Ruby Pinto. Excellent. And then the two co-hosts you heard with Christiana Cologne and Mike. Yeah, Mike Wani. Mike Wani, he, he, you know, heard the the show on the speakers and was like, yo, I'm trying to highlight you. So thank you. Uh, this is the Variety.